Did you know that Mary Pigford, a pioneer of early cinema, one of the most successful actresses of all time, and one of the co-founders of United Artists, was barely in her 40s when she retired from the screen? We'll discuss this and other interesting facts about women of a certain age in Hollywood with Dr. Pam Munter on this episode of The Curious Professor. I'm Dr. B. Welcome to the Curious Professor podcast, where I take listeners on a journey of discovery to explore the people, places, artifacts, and natural wonders that spark my curiosity. On this episode of the Curious Professor podcast, we'll explore misogyny in Hollywood and the cost of institutional social oppression on the careers of women in film with author Pam Munter. But first, a trivia question. Academy Award-winning actress Mary Pigford was the stepmother of what other Academy Award-winning actress? I'll have the answer for you at the end of this episode. I'm thrilled to have Dr. Pam Munter on the show today. Pam is a retired clinical psychologist, former performer, and film historian with six higher education degrees. Her many lengthy retrospectives on the lives of often-forgotten Hollywood performers and others have appeared in classic images and films of the Golden Age. More recently, her essays and short stories have been published in more than 150 publications, such as The Matador Review, Literary Yard, Sad Girl Review, The Rumpus, Remington Review, The Willow Literary Magazine, and many others. She's a Pushcart nominee, has an MFA in creative writing and writing for the performing arts, and lives in Palm Desert, California. When I found out about Pam's work on the struggles that aging women face in show business, something that I'm also passionate about, my curiosity was immediately piqued and I wanted to learn more. I hope this interview with Pam will spark your curiosity too. Welcome to the show, Pam. It's great to have you here. Oh, thanks for inviting me. Your book, Fading Fame, Women of a Certain Age in Hollywood, is a collection of 10 short stories and two short plays about the troubled lives and subsequent choices made by strong and talented women who survived Me Too but have aged out of the profession they love. Why do you think this was an important book to write? Well, there are two reasons, really. I wrote the book. One is that Me Too, of course, is hot now and much delayed, I might add, but a lot of people think that it's new. But the book suggests that Me Too, the casting couch, goes all the way back to the earliest days of Hollywood. And the second reason I wrote the book was that no one has written at all about the women after they had their fame. What happens after they've paid their dues? And how do they feel about that now? And was it worth it? That's for the reader to decide. What gave you the inspiration to write this book? I have always been a big fan of old Hollywood and have done extensive reading of anything I could get my hands on, really from my very first book, which was a picture book about the silent screen era, believe it or not. I was, I'm not that old, but I was fascinated by that from the get-go. So I thought, why not put that kind of information to good use, along with my expertise about from being a clinical psychologist, and see what 
what comes out. The focus of your historical fiction is iconic Hollywood figures such as screenwriter Frances Marion, film pioneer Mary Pickford, singer and actress Doris Day, and the legendary actress Ethel Barrymore. How did you select the women you chose to write about? I felt a bond with each of them, certainly in a different way. And I've read a lot about them. And in several instances, I have previously written about them in other contexts. They've all lived very complicated lives and all of them cope with the decline in identity in different ways. So I was fascinated. I mean, obviously this is a work of fiction, so I have changed things around a lot in many instances. Those who aren't named, because there are stories where it isn't a noted figure, they're amalgams, really, of real people. There's only one of the 10 short stories that is completely fictional, but even then some of the dialogue will have echoes for readers. They probably heard it before. What were some of the common themes that you found as you were writing this that the stories share? Struggle. Um, surprise, in some ways. I think these women didn't expect to lose their fame, and many of them lost it abruptly. Ethel Barrymore ran out of gas. She was very old and just couldn't do it anymore. Doris Day was ripped off by her husband for over $20 million. <laughs> that part is true. And she wanted to back out. She had a passion that she wanted to follow after the films, but most of these women did not. They were lost. You've stated that for the young, beautiful, nubile, and willing, fame can be yours, but the deal breaker is the aging process when women over 40 are replaced by younger and more eager models. What happens to women psychologically and emotionally when their fame fades as they get older? Well, there's nowhere to go. They have, uh, in the eras in which I'm writing, these women have gone by society's rules that there were two major things in their life. There was marriage and there was career. Well, we know from reading the book that marriage wasn't always very successful for these women because their real love was the career. So when both of those things are gone, there isn't a tentpole for them. There is no foundation. You know, many of them had meager educations at best. Several of them started very young and they missed developmental stages. So when the exterior fame and fortune and adulation is gone, there's no interior. You know, there's it's underdeveloped at best. Yeah, that foundation, that structure wasn't built along the way. That's right. That's right. The things that, that we all go through as children in learning how to cope with the world, they don't do that. They're on a path to success, to fame, to getting the next gig. Historically, there have been many actresses who have aged out of Hollywood when they were considered past their prime. Do you think things have gotten better for women over 40 in Hollywood in 2021? Well, there are three women of a certain age who are nominated this year for Best Actress, and that's lovely. I always liked uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg comment when somebody asked her after there were three women on the Supreme Court, how many do you think would be fair to have on the Supreme Court? And she said, nine, because for years there have been nine men on the Supreme Court. And I guess we could say the same thing of parts for women of a certain age. Unless they're written, they won't be on the screen. And there aren't many women of a certain age who are writing at all, screenwriting. They're young. Well, I am a screenwriter in addition to everything else that I do. And I know a lot of my peers who are women of a certain age who are screenwriting. So it's not like we're not out there trying 
trying to get our our work out there. Um, well, good. I hope you're successful. That's great. Thank you. The portrayal of women in Hollywood seems to go from ingenue to golden girl with nothing in between. As a media psychologist, why do you think women in Hollywood become invisible after 40 with so little representation of women in midlife in the movies and television? I think it's probably a reflection of society as a whole. You know, they say that the media reflects who we are. I think the media can also create who we can be. But women historically have been sexualized and infantilized, and they're easily cast aside for younger models. We see that all the time, even especially today, actually. When they're done functioning in that way, in terms of their value is diminished and they're cast aside. Let's talk about you and some of the things that you've done beyond this fabulous book. You also have a background in singing and acting, and you've said that you had a life on the fringes of show business. Would you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, I was fortunate to be raised in a suburb of Los Angeles and surrounded by the business. My parents were not in the business. They were blue collar kind of folks, you know, high school graduates who I'm sure my mother had aspirations <laughs> as a lot of women did in those days, but neither one of them acted on it. But I went to school with famous people. Uh, in my classes were Ryan O'Neill, for instance, and Nancy Sinatra was a year ahead of me uh, in high school. And in my drama class, I sat next to a mouseketeer. <laughs> so I was surrounded by possibility and I just, I knew I could do that. And so I put myself in a position where I sang and danced and acted. I was the uh, shy kid though. So what I ended up doing in high school was writing film reviews. And that became a thing that I did in college as well. I had a a column for the Daily Californian, actually a film and TV critique. I was the first female DJ in Los Angeles, which was fun, but I knew I had to earn a living and that wasn't it. So I accessed my intellectual side, went back to school, got a PhD in clinical psychology. And uh, I actually, I saw a lot of acting in therapy, performers. And of course, I knew exactly what was going on with them. So I was a, a good therapist for them. As the, the, that career started to wind down, uh, I did a local television show about the arts. I was a producer and the host of the art. And I ended up writing two dozen profiles of people for classic images and films of the golden age, people who were, who were likely to be forgotten. And so I wanted to know more about them. And I did that for a couple of years. At some point, I stopped all of that and jumped into show business. I found an agent, did a half a dozen independent films in Portland, Oregon, and uh, did a couple of CDs. One was a tribute to Frank Sinatra, and the other was a tribute to Doris Day, which was recorded at Capitol Records, which was mind-boggling for this kid who used to walk by Capitol as a kid thinking, you know, I hope somebody famous comes out. And here I was going in. That was just such a gas. Uh, I did actually send the CD to Doris Day. She was living in Carmel at the time. And I thought, you know, this is just sort of embarrassing. I hope she isn't upset or offended by this. What came back from her was a lovely, lovely letter. I have it hanging in my home, of course. And it almost sounded like fan mail. You know, I had spent all my childhood listening to her on my in my bedroom. And now here she was listening to me in her house. It was just absolutely 
absolutely mind-boggling. Well, then at some point, I went back to school, as I attending to do these days. <laughs> Too many degrees. This one I didn't want, but I had to sign up for it to get the training. It was a Master of Fine Arts in uh, Creative Writing and Writing for the Performing Arts. And that started this era of writing about film stars. It was very easy then to start putting together a book, the one you were talking about, Fading Fame, and to take advantage of what I was learning as a writer, as well as the shrink expertise and the knowledge about old Hollywood. I'm not sure what the next act's going to be, but I'm really enjoying the the, uh, the people are getting a lot out of Fading Fame. It's wonderful that you were able to take all of the aspects of your past, whether it be your years as a psychologist, your interest in film history, and your now your creative writing and your experience as a performer and, and put them all together in what you're doing now. Yes, I agree. It's, it's serendipitous, really. It hadn't been planned. Each of those careers was an end in itself and that they all came together is just a wonderful thing to have happen. Do you feel as though there was a time in your life when you aged out of the performing arts? Certainly as an actor, I did. Um, the parts that I was going up for were fewer and far between. I did have a wonderful commercial, though, in Oregon where I played sort of an Amelia Earhart kind of woman who was going into an assisted living facility. But first, I wanted to do one last flight in my own airplane. Now, that is a great image of a woman of a certain age. And I love doing that. But basically, I, I really couldn't function that well as an actor anymore. There were too many other alternatives that they could they could use. As far as the, the singing career, you know, there are women in the cabaret, jazz cabaret community who are ancient, who are still performing. Marilyn May is a great example of that. I think she passed 90 a few years ago, and she's still touring her cabaret act. Margaret Whiting performed almost to the end. Julie Wilson, the queen of cabaret, performed into her 90s. So I could have kept doing that, but it's it's really hard on you. It's hard on relationships, the, the travel, the up and down life. I found that my own more stable, calm temperament was always at odds with that. It was very hard to deal with it. You've also written a memoir called As Alone As I Want to Be, and you yeah. say it's a feminist journey through a life lived deliberately. Mm -hmm. I found it interesting that you open with a quote by George Bernard Shaw, and you do, and he says, life is not about finding yourself, life is about creating yourself. Would you tell us a little more about that? I love that quote. I just, it's so inspiring, I think. Well, from a young girl, I, I, and I'm pretty young, really, I, I look around me, I've been growing up in the 50s in a suburb of Los Angeles. I saw women who were wasting away, really. I mean, they were housewives. And I don't mean to put housewives down, but in those days, that's what they did. The men went to work, the women stayed home. There wasn't a choice. And I knew at a young age that this, this would not work for me. <laughs> I had to come up with something else. There weren't any role models, really, in my everyday life. So I spent a lot of time in the movies. I did a lot of reading. I had to find other ways to be me. It was hard to find role models. There just weren't any. So I figured out that my the keys to my success, even though it was a, a difficult road to trod, is to not be who other people wanted me to be, because the expectations had nothing to do with me. There were strong social cues about who I was supposed to be. And I just couldn't, couldn't do that. I knew that I would be very unhappy if I did that. It's a tougher life in some ways, you know, swimming upstream. I write, have written extensively about the sexism uh, 
being a psychologist and working in academic life. But I'm very optimistic about that. I think the development of a life and a personality continues to the lifespan. And you have to use yourself up. You know, you have to develop all parts of yourself. I always feel like I'm I'm on a threshold, you know, that there's more, that the door is going to open and I don't know what's going to be there, but I'm ready to jump in. <laughs> Something I've created. That's exciting. I love that image. Yeah, me too. If you could invite three famous people living or dead to a dinner party, who would you invite and why? <laughs> that is such a hard question. I tell you, I'm going to think about this probably for the next few weeks, actually. <laughs> I have thought about that. And you know, my first thought was, you know, maybe it should be a dead family member that I want to see again. But I don't think any of them would approve of me, actually. <laughs> so uh, my ne- next choices were, I started with Catherine Hepburn, because she obviously was the foremost feminist, I think, in Hollywood for her time. Interesting life, but the system, talented, admirable, uh, had an interesting life. The second one is probably less well-known to your listeners. Her name is Kay Thompson, and she's probably best known for writing the Eloise series about the little bratty girl who lives in the Plaza Hotel in New York City. But she was a foremost uh, advocate of vocal music at MGM in the 40s. Uh, She had Judy Garland as her main client, as well as anybody else who did any musicals at MGM during that time. And she made a film in, I think it was 1957, called Funny Face with uh, Audrey Hepburn and Fred Astaire. And she played this domineering magazine editor named Maggie Prescott. And I was a kid. I thought, wow, a woman doing that. How fabulous. She was one of the early people I researched and wrote about years ago because I wanted to know who this person was. I think her stories at that dinner table would be fabulous about all her friends. The third person uh, might be a surprise. It's Gene Kelly. And the reason I selected him is not only was he talented, of course, singing and dancing, uh, had a very long career, but he was smart. He was the only one, really, of all the people I've written about who had a college education. And he was multilingual. He was uh, intellectually curious. It wasn't just the creative process, which of course he was adept. It was, he liked to read. He liked to talk about things that didn't have to do with show business. And you don't find people like that very often. When I thought of these three people, I thought, how funny, because all three of them probably knew each other. They all worked at MGM in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. And I I would just love to sit there and listen to them talk. <laughs> it would just be wonderful. There were so many others I could add to that list. But wow, what a party that would be. I, would I never... know. I only gave you three, though. So I know. I know. Is there anything else that you'd like to tell us about you or your work? Well, I I think my strength as a writer is I have an ability to get inside a person's head. And some of that is a natural inclination. But of course, uh, having worked as a clinical psychologist for decades, that's what I did. And it comes out on the page. I am less concerned about what somebody did, you'll see in the stories that I write about in Fading Fame, as what they're thinking about it and how they're feeling about it and how they process what's happening to them. Because of course, it's their lives we're talking about. It's not just what happened. And most people who read this book maybe haven't heard of these folks before. So the idea of reading about Mary Pickford, for instance, they're, you know, they're saying, who? Who's that? Well, and they read the book. They have a sense of who she was. I want the reader to know the person. And I want them to feel for these women. I want them to develop a sense of empathy for where they are in their lives. I don't think that people realize if they're not in the profession of psychology, how well psychology and creative writing go together. I'm a psychology professor and I 
I do a lot of creative oh. writing. So uh, I don't think people who don't have those two backgrounds can appreciate how well they join together. And, and it's a really good fit. It's natural, I think. It's hard not to get into somebody's life that way. Where can listeners find out more about you? Well, I have a website, uh, pammunter.com. And uh, all the essays that I've written are there. When I was in the MFA program five years ago, it started a writing spurt that I was unable to stop. It was just an amazing outpouring of uh, about 150 publications in a four-year span, most of which were essays. The so, plays aren't there, but the essays are. So that's Pam Munter, P-A-M-M-U-N-T-E-R.com. Correct. Well, it was wonderful to have you on the show, Pam. Well, thank you, Dr. B. I appreciate being asked. Such a delight. Thank you so much for taking time to be a guest on the Curious Professor podcast. And now for the answer to this episode's trivia question. Academy Award-winning actress Mary Pickford was the stepmother of what other Academy Award-winning actress? In 1929, while Mary Pickford was married to Douglas Fairbanks Sr., her stepson, Douglas Fairbanks Jr., married Joan Crawford, who then became Mary's stepdaughter. We'll end the show with something punny. What do cows do for fun? Go to the movies. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Curious Professor podcast. If there's a person, place, artifact, or natural wonder that has sparked your curiosity and you'd like for me to feature it on the show, please let me know. My website is thecuriousprofessorpodcast.com. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to subscribe to the Curious Professor podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you'd like to become part of my community of curiosity seekers, be sure to visit my website, thecuriousprofessorpodcast.com, and join Dr. B's Hive. Until next time, always be learning and be curious with Dr. B.